Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, and a two-story special presentation from Australian poet, novelist, and short story writer, Banjo Patterson, who is best known as the author of Waltzing Matilda, Australia's national song. Banjo Patterson and Henry Lawson are considered two of Australia's most beloved classic writers. Their work told of the hardships and joys of scratching out life in an often unforgiving and barren land in the days before real civilization came to the island country of Australia. Life then was centered around raising livestock, sheep, and cattle, and it was a tough life on men and women. Our first selection is a poem called The Man from Snowy River, which describes life in the Australian outback and conveys a sense of pride that Australians have for their country. The second story is narrated by our favorite Australian narrator, Erica Tippett. The title is Two Elephant Power, and this story captures a time when cars first started to show up on the dirt roads of Australia's back country. Cars which, depending upon the personality of the driver, provided a very rough time for animals and people who got in the way. And first, The Man from Snowy River by Banjo Patterson. The Man from Snowy River and Other Verses Preface by Rolf Boulderwood It is not so easy to write ballads descriptive of the bushland of Australia as on light consideration would appear. Reasonably good verse on the subject has been supplied in sufficient quantity, but the maker of folk songs for our newborn nation requires a somewhat rare combination of gifts and experiences. Dowered with the poet's heart, he must yet have passed his wander year amid the stern solitude of the austral waste, must have ridden the race in the back block township, guided the restless stock horse down the mountain, and followed the night-long moving, spectral-seeming herd in the droving days. Amid such scarce congenial surroundings comes oft that finer sense which renders visible bright gleams of humor, pathos, and romance, which, like undiscovered gold, await the fortunate adventurer, that the author has touched this treasure trove, not less delicately than distinctly, no true Australian will deny. In my opinion, this collection comprises the best bush ballads written since the death of Lindsay Gordon. Prelude I have gathered these stories afar, in the wind and the rain, in the land where the cattle camps are, on the edge of the plain, on the overland routes of the west, when the watches were long, I have fashioned in earnest and jest these fragments of song. They are just the rude stories one hears in sadness and mirth, the records of wandering years, and scant is their worth, though their merits indeed are but slight. I shall not repine. If they give you one moment's delight, old comrades of mine. There was movement at the station, for the word had passed around that the colt from old regret had got away, and had joined the wild bush horses. He was worth a thousand pound, so all the cracks had gathered in the fray. All the tried and noted riders from the stations near and far had mustered at the homestead overnight, for the bushmen love hard riding where the wild bush horses are, and the stock horse snuffs the battle with delight. There was Harrison, who made his pile when Pardon won the cup, 
the old man with his hair as white as snow. But few could ride beside him when his blood was fairly up. He would go wherever horse and man could go. And Clancy of the Overflow came down to lend a hand. No better horseman ever held the reins. For never horse could throw him while the saddle girths would stand. He learned to ride while droving on the plains. And one was there, a stripling on a small and weedy beast. He was something like a racehorse undersized. With a touch of Timor pony, three parts thoroughbred at least, and such as are by mountain horsemen prized. He was hard and tough and wiry, just the sort that won't say die. There was courage in his quick, impatient tread, and he bore the badge of gameness in his bright and fiery eye, and the proud and lofty carriage of his head. But still so slight and weedy, one would doubt his power to stay, and the old man said, "'That horse'll never do, for a long and tiring gallop. Lad, you better stop away. Those hills are far too rough for such as you.' So he waited, sad and wistful. Only Clancy stood his friend. "'I think we ought to let him come,' he said. "'I warrant he'll be with us when he's wanted at the end, for both his horse and he are mountain-bred.' He hails from Snowy River, up by Kosciuszko's side, where the hills are twice as steep and twice as rough, where horses' hooves strike firelight from the flintstones every stride. The man that holds his own is good enough. And the Snowy River riders on the mountains make their home, where the river runs those giant hills between. I've seen full many horsemen since I first commenced to roam, but nowhere yet. Such horsemen have I seen. And so he went. They found the horses by the big mimosa clump. They raced away towards the mountain's brow. And the old man gave his orders. Boys, go at them from the jump. No use to try for fancy riding now. And Clancy, you must wheel them. Try and wheel them to the right. Ride boldly, lad, and never fear the spills. For never yet was rider that could keep the mob in sight if once they gained the shelter of those hills. So Clancy rode to wheel them. He was racing on the wing, where the best and boldest riders take their place. And he raced his stock horse past them, and he made the ranges ring with the stock whip as he met them face to face. Then they halted for a moment while he swung the dreaded lash but they saw their well-loved mountain full in view, and they charged beneath the stock whip with a sharp and sudden dash, and oft into the mountain scrub they flew. Then fast the horsemen followed, where the gorges deep and black resounded to the thunder of their tread, and the stock whips woke the echoes, and they fiercely answered back, from cliffs and crags that beetled overhead. And upward, ever upward, the wild horses held their way, where Mountain Ash and Kurijan grew wide. And the old man muttered fiercely, We may bid the mob good day. No man can hold them down the other side. When they reached the mountain's summit, even Clancy took a pull. It well might make the boldest hold their breath. The wild hop scrub grew thickly, and the hidden ground was full of wombat holes, and any slip was death.
"'but the man from Snowy River let the pony have his head, "'and he swung his stock whip round and gave a cheer. "'And he raced him down the mountain like a torrent down its bed, "'while the others stood and watched in very fear. "'He sent the Flintstones flying, but the pony kept his feet. "'He cleared the fallen timber in his stride, "'and the man from Snowy River never shifted in his seat. "'It was grand to see that mountain horseman ride.' through the stringy barks and saplings on the rough and broken ground. Down the hillside at a racing pace he went, and he never drew the bridle till he landed safe and sound at the bottom of that terrible descent. He was right among the horses as they climbed the further hill and the watchers on the mountain standing mute. Saw him ply the stock whip fiercely. He was right among them still as he raced across the clearing in pursuit. Then they lost him for a moment, where two mountain gullies met, in the ranges. But a final glimpse reveals, on a dim and distant hillside, the wild horses racing yet, with the man from Snowy River at their heels. And he ran them single-handed till their sides were white with foam. He followed like a bloodhound on their track, till they'd halted cowed and beaten. Then he turned their heads for home, and alone and unassisted, brought them back. But his hardy mountain pony, he could scarcely raise a trot. He was blood from hip to shoulder from the spur. But his pluck was still undaunted, and his courage fiery hot, for never yet was mountain horse a cur. And down by Kosciuszko, where the pine-clad ridges rise, their torn and rugged battlements on high, where the air is clear as crystal, and the white stars fairly blaze, at midnight in the cold and frosty sky. And where around the overflow the reed beds sweep and sway, to the breezes and the rolling plains are wide. The man from Snowy River is a household word today, and the stockmen's tell the story of his ride. And now, Two Elephant Power by Erica Tippett. Three Elephant Power by Andrew Barton Patterson, known as Banjo Patterson. Them things, said Alfred the chauffeur, tapping the speed indicator with his fingers. Them things are all right for the police, but, Lord, you can fix them up if you want to. Did you ever hear about Ennery, that used to drive for old John Bull, about Ennery and the elephant? Alfred was chauffeur to a friend of mine who owned a very powerful car. Alfred was part of that car. Weirdly intelligent, of poor physique, he might have been any age from 15 to 80. His education had been somewhat hurried, but there was no doubt as to his mechanical ability. He took to a car like a young duck to water. He talked motor, thought motor, and would have accepted, I won't say with enthusiasm, for Alfred's motto was, Nil Admirari, but without hesitation, an offer to drive in the greatest race in the world. He could drive really well, too. As for belief in himself, after six months' apprenticeship in a garage, he was prepared to vivisect a six-cylinder engine with the confidence of a diplomaed Bachelor of Engineering. Barring a tendency to flash driving, and a delight in persecuting slow cars by driving just in front of them and then letting them come up and enjoy his dust and then shooting away again, 
he was a respectable member of society. When his boss was in the car, he cloaked the natural ferocity of his instincts. But this day, with only myself on board, and a clear run of 120 miles up to the station before him, he let her loose, confident that if any trouble occurred, I would be held morally responsible. As we flew past a somnolent bush pub, Alfred, whistling softly, leant forward and turned on a little more oil. You never heard about Henry and the elephant? he said. It was dead funny. Henry was a bushwhacker, but clean mad on motoring. He was wood and water joey at some squatter's place until he seen a motor car go past one day, the first that ever they had in the district. That's my game, says Henry. No more wood and water joey for me. So he comes to town and gets a job off Miles that had that garage at the back of Allison's, an old cove that they called John Bull. I don't know his right name. He was a fat old cove. He used to come there to hire cars, and Henry used to drive him. And this old John Bull, he had lots of stuff. So at last he reckons he's going to get a car for himself, and he promises Henry a job to drive it. Queer a cove this Henry was. Half mad, I think but the best hand with a car ever I see. While he had been talking, we topped a hill and opened up a new stretch of blue-grey granite-like road. Down at the foot of the hill was a teamster's wagon in camp, the horses in their harness munching at their nose bags, while the teamster and a mate were boiling a billy a little off to the side of the road. There was a turn in the road just below the wagon which looked a bit sharp, so of course Alfred bore down on it like a whirlwind. The big stupid team horses huddled together and pushed each other awkwardly as we passed. A dog that had been sleeping in the shade of the wagon sprang out right in front of the car and was exterminated without ever knowing what struck him. There was just room to clear the tail of the wagon and negotiate the turn. Alfred, with the calm decision of a Napoleon, swung round the bend to find that the teamster's hack, fast asleep, was tied to the tail of the wagon. Nothing but a lightning-like twist of the steering wheel prevented our scooping the old animal up and taking him on board as a passenger. As it was, we carried off most of his tail as a trophy on the brass of the lamp. The old steed, thus rudely awakened, lashed out good and hard, but by that time we were gone, and he missed the car by a quarter of a mile. During this strenuous episode, Alfred never relaxed his professional stolidity, and when we were clear, went on with his story in the tone of a man who found life wanting in animation. Well, at first, the old man would only buy one of these little eight-horse rubby-dubbies that go struggling up hills with a death rattle in its throat and all the people in buggies passing it. Of course, that didn't suit Henry. He used to get that spiked when a car passed him, he'd nearly go mad. And one day he nearly got the sack for dodging about up a steep hill in front of one of them big 24 derricks full of owl and toffs and not letting them get a chance to pass till they got to the top. But at last he persuaded old John Bull to let him go to England and buy a car for him. He was to do a year in the shops and pick up all the wrinkles and get a car for the old man. Bit better than wood and water join, wasn't it? Our progress here was barred by our rounding a corner right on to a flock of sheep that at once packed together into a solid mass in front of us, blocking the whole road from fence to fence. Silly cows are things, ain't they? said Alfred, putting on his emergency brake and skidding up till the car came softly to rest against the cushion-like mass. 
a much quicker stop than any horse-drawn vehicle could have made. A few sheep were crushed somewhat, but it is well known that a sheep is practically indestructible by violence. Whatever Alfred's faults were, he certainly could drive. Well, he went on, lighting a cigarette, unheeding the growls of the drovers who were trying to get the sheep to pass the car. Well, as I was saying, Henry went to England, and he got a car. Do you know what he got? No, I don't. He got a ninety, said Alfred slowly, giving time for the words to soak in. A ninety? What do you mean? He got a ninety, a ninety-horsepower racing engine, what was made for some American millionaire and wasn't as fast as what some other millionaire had, so he sold it for the price of the iron and Henry got it and had a body built for it and he comes out here and tells us all it's a twenty-mongrel. You know, one of them cars that's made part in one place and part in another, the body here and the engine there and the radiator another place. There's lots of cheap cars made like that. So Henry says that this is a 20 mongrel, only a four-cylinder engine, and nobody drops to what she is till Henry goes out one Sunday and waits for the big Napier that Scotty used to drive. It belonged to the same bloke what owned that big race horse, what won all the races. So Henry and Scotty, they have a fair go round the park while both their bosses is at church, and Henry beat him out o' sight. Fair lost him, and so Henry was wrecking the boss of the road. No one would take him on after that. A nasty creek crossing here required Alfred's attention. A little girl, carrying a billy can of water, stood by the stepping stones and smiled shyly as we passed. Alfred waved her a salute quite as though he were an ordinary human being. I felt comforted. He had his moments of relaxation evidently, and his affections like other people. What happened to Henry and the ninety-horse machine? I asked. And where does the elephant come in? Alfred smiled pittingly. Ain't I telling you? he said. You wouldn't understand if I didn't tell you how he got the car and all that. So here's Henry, he went on, with old John Bull going about in the fastest car in Australia, and old John, he's a quiet old geezer that wouldn't drive faster than the regulations for anything, and that's short-sighted he can't see to the side of the road. So what does Henry do? He fixes up the speed indicator, puts a new face on it, so that when the car is doing 30, the indicator only shows 15, and 20 for 40, and so on. So out they'd go, and if Henry knew there was a big car in front of him, he'd let out to 45, and the pace would very nearly blow the whiskers off old John and every now and again he'd look at the indicator and it'd be showing twenty-two and a half, and he'd say, Better be careful, Henry. You're slightly exceeding the speed limit. Twenty miles an hour, you know. Henry should be fast enough for anybody, and you're doing over twenty-two. Well, one day, Henry told me, he was trying to catch up to a big car that just came out from France, and it had a half-hour start of him, and he was just fairly flying and there was a lot of cars on the road, and he flies past him so fast the old man says, It's very strange, Henry. 
who says, that all the cars that are out today are coming this way, who says, you see he was passing them so fast he thought that they were all coming towards him. And Henry sees a mate of his coming. So he lets out a notch or two and the two cars flew by each other like chain lightning. They were each doing about 40 and the old man, he says, there's a driver must be travelling a hundred miles an hour, he says. I never see a car go by so fast in my life, he says. If I could find out who he was, I'd report him, he says. Do you know the car, Henry? But of course, Henry, he doesn't know. So on they goes. The owner of the big French car thinks he has the fastest car in Australia, and when he sees Henry and the old man coming, he tells his driver to let her out a little. But Henry gives the 90 horse the full of the lever and whips up alongside him one jump, and then he keeps there just a half a length ahead of him, tormenting him like. And the owner of the French car yells out to old John Bull, You're going a nice pace for an olden, he says. Old John has a blink down at the indicator. We're doing 25, he yells out. 25 grandmothers, says the bloke. But Henry put on his accelerator and left him. It wouldn't do to let the old man wise to it, you know. We topped a big hill and Alfred cut off the engine and let the car swoop as swiftly and noiselessly as an eagle down to the flat country below. You're a long while coming to the elephant, Alfred, I said. Well, now, I'll tell you about the elephant, said Alfred, letting his clutch in again and taking up the story to the accompaniment of the rhythmic throb of the engine. One day, Henry and the old man were going out a long trip over the mountain and down the Kangaroo Valley Road that's all cut out of the side of the hill. And after they has gone a mile or two, Henry sees a track in the road, the track of the biggest car he ever seen or heard of. And the more he looks at it, the more he reckons he must catch that car and see what she's made of. So he slows down passing two yokels on the road and he says, Did you see a big car along here? Yes, we did, they says. How big is she? says Henry. Biggest car ever we see says the yokels, and they laugh that silly way these yokels always does. How many horsepower do you think she was? says Henry. Horsepower, they says. Elephant power, you mean? She was three elephant power, they says, and they goes, haw haw. And Henry drops his clutch in and off he goes after that car. Alfred lit another cigarette as a preliminary to the climax. So they run for miles, and all the time there's the track ahead of them, and Henry keeps letting her out, thinking that he'll never catch that car. They went through a town so fast, the old man, he says, What house was that we just passed? He says, At last they come to the top of a big hill, and there's the tracks of the big car going straight down ahead of them. Do you know that road? It's all cut out of the side of the mountain. And there's places where if she was to sideslip, you'd go down hundreds of thousands of feet. And there's sharp turns too. But the surface is good. So Henry lets her out and down they go. Whizzing round the turns and skating out near the edge. And the old cove sitting there enjoying it, never knowing the danger. And coming to one turn, 
Henry gives a toot on the horn. And then he heard something go toot toot right way down the mountain. About a mile ahead it seemed to be. And Henry reckoned he'd go another four miles before he'd catch it. So he chances them turns more than ever. And she was pretty hot too. But he kept her at it and he hadn't gone a full mile till he came round a turn about 40 miles an hour and before he could stop he ran right into it. And what do you think it was? I hadn't the faintest idea. A circus! One of them travelling circuses going down the coast and one of the elephants had sore feet. So they put him in a big wagon and another elephant pulled in front and one pushed behind. Three elephant power it was, right enough. There was the wagon what made the big track. Well, it was all done so sudden. Before Henry could stop, he runs the radiator, very near boiling she was, up against the elephant's tail and prints the pattern of the latest honeycomb radiator on the elephant as clear as if he'd done it with a stencil. The elephant, he lets a roar out of him like one of them bulls bellering, and he puts out his nose and kitches Henry around the neck and yanks him out of the car and chucks him right clean over the cliff, about a thousand feet, but he never done nothing to the old bloke. Good gracious! Well, it finished Henry. Killed him stone dead, of course. And the old man, he was terrible cut up over losing such a steady, trustworthy man. Never get another like him, he says. We were nearly at our journey's end, and we turned through a gate into the home paddocks. Some young stock, both horses and cattle, came frisking and cantering after the car, and the rough bush track took all Alfred's attention. We crossed a creek, the water swishing from the wheels, and began the long pull up to the homestead. Over the clamour of the little used second speed, Alfred concluded his narrative. The old bloke advertised, he said, for another driver, a steady, reliable man to drive a 20 horsepower four-cylinder touring car. Every driver in Sydney put him for it. Nothing like a fast car to fetch him, you know. And Scotty got it. Him what used to drive the Napier I was telling you about? What did the old man say when he found he'd been running a racing car? He don't know now. Scotty never told him. Why should he? He's driving about the country now. The boss of the roads. But he won't chance her near a circus. Thinks he might bump the same elephant. And that elephant, every time he smells a car passing in the road, he goes near mad with fright. If he ever sees that car again, do you think he'd know it? Not being used to elephants, I could not offer an opinion. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. And thanks, Erica Tippett, for your narration of Three Elephant Power. Erica also gave us Louisa May Alcott's Lost in a London Fog, which is available over at 1001 Greatest Love Stories. And by the way, we're taking on new subscribers over there, so be sure to join us. It's free, no matter what kind of device you use. And we posted links to 1001 Greatest Love Stories in the show notes here. Next week, here at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, stay tuned for Sherlock Holmes. We'll see you next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Everyone, stay safe.